Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And Alex, today we've got three stories for the audience. Uh, The first is a big update on D.C. and international news and how that's related to Nevada. And after that, we have a story from reporter Rocio Hernandez on a cyber attack that happened in Clark County School District. Yeah, and then on a lighter note to wrap things up, me and reporter Amy Alonzo talk about a furry friend in Nevada's waterways. Reporter Nyoka Foreman here. The Nevada Independent is partnering with Vegas PBS to present the Nevada Democracy Project, a new initiative focused on civic engagement and community conversations. I'm co-moderating alongside Amber Dixon, the host of Nevada Week at Vegas PBS. The first community listening session will be held on Wednesday, November 1st, from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. at the West Las Vegas Library. More information is available at the NevadaIndependent.com backslash democracy project. Okay, well, I am here with Gabby Bierenbaum, our reporter in D.C. Hello, Gabby. How's it going? Hey, Joey. It's good. How are you? Doing well. We always start with the weather. You're across the country. It's nice to hear about the weather on the East Coast compared to out here in the West, where it is a chilly uh, 60 degree fall. The leaves are falling, but it's not too cold just yet. It's actually pretty nice here, and it's going to be 80 degrees over Halloween weekend, which is really weird because I grew up, you know, having to, like, fight my parents and wear a sweatshirt over my costume. So kids these days don't know. They yeah. don't know it used to have it when it used to be cold in the fall here. But no, it's, <laughs> it's been pretty nice. Nice. Yeah. I've, it's snowed on Halloween here a few times in Reno, but uh, mostly we have pretty nice Halloween. It looks like it'll be a, a brisk 50, mid-50s, low 60s Halloween this year. But we haven't talked in a while about all of the things going on in D.C., and there is a lot that is going on that kind of relates back to Nevada. And so to start off, there's been this big, long, drawn out fight over the Speaker of the House. Yes. So we're going into week three without a Speaker of the House. I don't know how exactly I'm going to edit this together, but we are actually re-recording this part of uh, the D.C. update segment because they we have a Speaker. We recorded this. Yesterday, we didn't have a speaker. Now we've got a speaker. <laughs> yeah, 21, no speaker. Day 22, we got one. So here we are back in the booth. And by speaker, I guess I should, for those who aren't paying attention, this is Speaker of the House. We didn't have a Speaker of the House. After former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy was ousted and, and, and removed from office based off of some provisions that were agreed upon before he was entered office. So he was gone. We had 22 days with no speaker. We recorded a segment yesterday where we talked about all the chaos that was going on. And today, as I was about ready to hit publish on the podcast, we got a speaker. So we're re-recording this part. <laughs> no, we are. Yeah. House Republicans ended their chaos, but causing chaos for us. So tell me about the new speaker. What's going on? <laughs> yes. So Mike Johnson, who he's a fourth term member from Louisiana, he was the vice chair of the conference. Last night, Mike Johnson became the speaker designate among House Republicans. Interestingly, when members voted to say if they would support him on the floor or not, only three members who were there voted present instead of saying they would. And one of them was Mark Amaday, our only Republican here in Nevada. And Amaday talked to now Speaker Johnson, talked to the majority leader, Steve Scalise, and caught him up on his Nevada-specific priorities, most of which involve lands bills. He felt that Mike Johnson understood what he was talking about. And so he supported him on the floor today, as did every House Republican. And we have a new speaker, Mike Johnson. 
Well, it's interesting to hear. So Amade, one of the few people that go talk to him before he he voted yes. He, Amade was pretty exasperated as as we talked about yesterday. The the segment that will never hear the the, the air. <laughs> but Amade has been exasperated through this process, right? Yeah, he's been pretty exasperated, I think, by just how long it was taking, how much dysfunction there was, that people weren't being team players and just moving forward um, with the nominee. Johnson was not the first choice, the second choice or the third choice. He was the fourth choice of a speaker designate, um, but he's the one who broke through on the floor. Amade, I talked to him this morning. He said that over the seven years they've served together, he hasn't crossed paths much with Mike Johnson. They haven't served on any of the same committees or anything like that. From, they're from different parts of the country. And so he felt that because he's the only Republican from Nevada, he wanted to make sure that Mike Johnson understood his Nevada-specific priorities. So after those conversations, he felt that he had enough to go on and he was able to support him on the floor. But he said things were moving so fast last night as they switched from in the morning. Tom Emmer had been named as the speaker designate. He dropped out four hours later. Then they pivoted to Mike Johnson. He felt that it was moving so fast that he wanted to do his due diligence and do a little vetting of Mike Johnson before giving him, him support. But he ultimately did. And now we'll call him Speaker Johnson. All right. So what does this kind of mean for the future? We're, we're going to start seeing votes come through and kind of the, the regular churn of politics. I know we're coming up on another deadline for a potential shutdown, right? Yes. So now after this three-week hiatus, the House is back open for business. There's a lot to do between now and particularly November 17th, which is when government funding runs out. So Johnson proposed a pretty ambitious schedule. He wants to do the eight remaining funding bills by that date. That doesn't mean they become law. They then have to go to the Senate, where the bills would probably be heavily altered, given that they have a lot of Republican priorities. Democrats haven't supported these bills, save for two Democrats crossing over to vote for two of the four that have passed so far. So we still have to go to conference with the Senate and then get the president's approval. So he has also expressed openness to another short-term funding patch that would take us through, he said, either January 15th or April 15th, depending on how things go. It was supporting a short-term funding resolution like that that got McCarthy ousted. But given that Johnson, McCarthy, there were a lot of sort of personal beefs that members had with him. Johnson is coming into this relatively new and fresh. That could be a positive and that I think members are willing to give him a little bit more rope in what he's allowed to do. Could be a negative in that he's never been in these rooms before. He's never even had the type of staff that a committee chairman has, let alone a speaker. And now he's being asked to go toe-to-toe with Chuck Schumer, with Mitch McConnell, with Joe Biden people who have been there for decades. So we'll see what happens and if he's able to translate all this sort of House Republican hullabaloo that's gone on over the last three weeks into some sort of legislative victory. We'll see. But it does mean that the House is now open. Their first order of business today is going to be passing a resolution condemning Hamas and stating support for Israel. They're going to be able to work on, if they so choose, the Biden administration's supplemental funding request for aid for Israel, for Ukraine, for Taiwan, for a number of national security priorities. And so we'll see. We now have about three and a half weeks until the next funding deadline. All right. Well, Gabby, we'll leave it there and we'll jump back over to what we recorded yesterday for the rest of the segment. Uh, Hopefully we don't have to re-record this again. I'm going to hit publish here in about a half hour. So hopefully nothing changes between now and then. (laughs) I think think we'll be safe. (laughs) All right. Well, let's jump back over to our original conversation from yesterday. Thanks, Gabby. Thank you. Well, one new development involving Nevada's delegation has been about military funding. There's also been some talks about expanding an an air range, a military air range um, north of Las Vegas, right? Yeah. So northwest of Las Vegas, that's where the Nevada test and training range is. That's where they do a lot of aerial testing and aerial combat simulation for the Air Force. And the Air Force this year wants to expand uh, its footprint there. It wants to add these things called test emitters 
which are these systems that simulate different emissions that different armies around the world give off in their in their air flights and aircraft. And it would allow pilots to sort of train to respond in real time. But that takes space. And so they want to expand their footprint in the desert. The part of the desert they're interested in is also the Desert National Wildlife Refuge, which is a huge refuge for bighorn sheep. It's the biggest wildlife refuge outside of Alaska, I learned. And so Senator Cortez Masto is proposing a bit of a compromise to allow the Air Force to put in those test emitters and also designate 700,000 acres of that refuge as wilderness permanently in order to preserve public access there if you want to go hunting, if you want to go camping out there, if you're a bighorn sheep who lives there, um, and to ensure that the Air Force, that that part at least is permanently closed off to the Air Force or to anyone else. All right. Well, as someone who's explored the Desert National Wildlife Refuge actually quite extensively, it is a pretty interesting area. It is kind of right up against that, that testing area. Gabby, thank you so much for chatting with me today about all of this, and I'm sure we'll have more updates soon. Thank you, Joey. I am here with our education reporter, Rocio Hernandez. Rocio, thanks for joining me. Hey, good morning. We're talking today about cyber attacks, uh, something we talked about actually a few weeks ago on the podcast as it related to uh, casinos on the Strip. But now we're talking about the Clark County School District, who was also just a victim of a cyber attack. Can you tell me a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, it's definitely the season for cybersecurity incidents, and it's not a good thing, right? We've heard first publicly on October 16th that CCSD was going through what they called a cybersecurity incident. So they didn't go as far as to call it a breach or a hack. So it's kind of unclear of what exactly is going on. And the information that we've gotten so far from the district, I will say, is pretty limited. They said in their statement that they first found out that something was going on, that there was an issue with their online workspace from October 5th, and they didn't publicly disclose it until October 16th. And that week is really when students and staff started noticing that there was a couple of issues when they were trying to log in to their emails or other Google apps virtually from their home. And then once they arrived back on campus a couple days after that announcement, they all started noticing that they were having issues logging in from within CCSD schools. Um, and that's because as a precaution, the district decided to reset everyone's passwords for everything. And the process for getting your accounts set up again has been a little bit tricky. You're talking about a school district of, you know, 300,000 students, plus the number of employees, thousands of employees. So I've heard that some of these steps to set up your passwords again and get you connected haven't been as smooth as some schools and others, especially when you're talking about high schools with hundreds of students. And at least high school students are a little bit more tech savvy. You know, at the elementary schools, you kind of have to help students, especially if they're not like English isn't their first language or they're just not as tech savvy because they just don't have the tech at home. So it's been a little disruptive for the learning that's been going on at CCSD. And again, kind of the disruption levels vary from school to school. I know you talked to Assemblyman Ruben De Silva, who is also a teacher in CCSD. And he, he talked about, you know, like going back to pen and paper. And for some students, it, it was good. But, you know, Obviously, maybe it's not the the way that they should be doing things long term. Yeah, it just makes me smile every time I hear like students are having to go back to pen and paper because I grew up, you know, when we went to school, Joey, you mm -hmm. know, it was the standard and it was the norm to yeah. have your assignments all printed out for you. Uh, rarely would you go use the computer 
maybe during computer lab time when you're at the library or maybe when you're at home, you type up your essays. But so what he was telling me is that as a teacher, um, he uses the Chromebooks that they provide to CCSD students at his class. But he's noticed that, you know, it, ha- it comes with some challenges. He's more of an old school teacher, too. He's used to writing, for example, taking notes in class out in paper and pencil. And he said even before the cybersecurity incident, he's always encouraged his students to write out their notes as opposed to copy and pasting them. Some students even take their phones out and take pictures of the slides. You know, it's good, saves time. But at the same time, the writing out the notes really helps with your memory. And so Mm -hmm. he said that before this, he encouraged students to write their pen and paper so that part of the class hasn't been disrupted. He did have some assignments that he had to move to your standard pen and paper, you know, making students write out their essays, things like that. And so far, he said that that students have been reacting positively to it because they feel more connected to their assignments now. You know, you have to write it out. So then maybe you'll have to think about it a little bit more. And for him as a teacher, he said it's also been good because one of his concerns with using technology is that students can easily just go on Google, you know, type up the question and then copy and paste the answers. And he can't really control if students are actually doing their work or if they're taking advantage of the tech that they have on their desk and just getting easy answers. So he said that that's one benefit of going back to the pen and paper. You know, the, you can't easily copy and paste it as you could, you know, with your phone or with your tablet or with your laptop in your desk. So we've talked about kind of these surprising positive twists to this whole thing, but obviously it's not a good thing that this thing happened. Do we know exactly why it happened yet? They haven't announced, they haven't really said like if this is uh, trying to get data or if it was a uh, ransom attack or anything. CCSD has been limited on the information that it's released and probably for a good thing, you know, I've heard from cybersecurity experts that during these incidents, you don't want to release too much information. There has to be a fine balance of like the communication you keep with the students and staff that you serve. And also, you know, like you don't want to tell necessarily the whole world everything that's going on. But yeah, so far, what we know is that CCSD is investigating it with its own team of experts and it is helping law enforcement with their investigation. They've said that any student or staff that is going that does have their personal information breached will be getting a letter at home. So at this time, it's not really known how many people are impacted and if their information is being stolen. It's kind of unclear what's going on, if there's a ransom being asked. But there was a similar incident three years ago where ransom was being asked. The district never disclosed the amount that the hacker was asking for. And it did result in the public release of information of a number of students and staff online. Um, So it is pretty serious and it is in a lot of people's minds what happened three years ago and having something happen maybe similar to it again just a few years later. And what kind of information do schools have? Obviously, they have grades and names and birthdays probably, but what else could be a a potential uh, leak? Yeah, well, for parents, you know, a lot of the information that they have to give to schools is personal when you register your student to like your address, students' personal information, your like health records, things like that for all the like necessary things to set you up in school. Uh, For employees, it's a little bit more personal because, you know, their social security numbers are out there in the Mm -hmm. school district, their banking information to get their direct deposit. So now all of this could potentially be in the hands of someone that you don't know. 
Well, with all of that, we will we'll leave it there. Uh, as we learn more, we will let the audience know. Rocio, you talked to a cybersecurity expert who recommended, uh, you know, two-factor authentication, resetting your passwords regularly. So if you are concerned about any cybersecurity issues, you should always uh, be looking at that. And there's a lot of resources online that will help you with any cybersecurity problems that you might have. Rocio, thank you so much for chatting with me today. <laughs> we'll talk to you later. All right. See ya. I am here with reporter Amy Alonzo, and we are here to talk about something a little lighthearted today, which is beavers. And I find this extremely interesting. I've heard about it actually before I read your story, but why are beavers so important to Nevada? Nevada is the driest state in the union, but we do have some really key um, wetland areas pocketed throughout the state. Uh, A lot of them in northern Reno, Winnemucca, Elko, Reno area, and Beavers really enhance those wetlands by building up their dams. It backs up water, recharges the groundwater table, and just really provides a habitat for wildlife and fish, migrating waterfowl, etc. I think I was reading your story and it mentioned that they're really important for the ecosystem. But before ranchers were really realizing this, they thought that beavers were a problem. For sure. In the settler times, Beavers were really attractive for pelts, for oil. They were hunted to very low levels, or trapped, I should say. Those levels have continued to stay down until a few decades ago, suddenly people were looking at habitat and were like, oh my gosh, we are seeing a lot of impacts, a lot of problems, and realizing that beavers historically had naturally done a lot of this restoration work that we are now trying to do to bring wetlands back. And so scientists were realizing that it took a little while to get ranchers and other land managers on board because from my conversations with scientists, it's that a beaver here is water, they build a dam. It doesn't matter if it's a natural creek or stream or if it's a farmer or rancher's irrigation ditch, they just hear water, build a dam. And so when you are trying to grow crops or graze cattle or whatever and move water across that property, that can be a huge obstacle if you have something backing up your water. Also in Nevada, we have really strict laws about water rights. And if you have a beaver building a dam, blocking water from moving its way downstream, that also causes some legal issues for water users. So there's a lot that's tied into beavers that's not just are they doing good things, creating habitat. Is there a way now that scientists and ranchers, I guess specifically in Nevada, are coming together? There's something called a beaver dam analog, which has gained a lot of traction. So this is where you mimic the benefits of a beaver dam without actually adding the beaver. Nevada Department of Wildlife is working on a project. They completed a few up in Winnemucca area on Crowley Creek, where they go in and using just natural... Um, materials, branches, sticks, etc., build a basket weave fence and place it in the water, which traps the sediment and backs up the water as a beaver dam would do. But eventually it will erode, degrade, and they can either choose to go back in and rebuild it or just let the benefits that have occurred take their natural course. And 
the analogs have gained a lot of popularity because you have the choices of where you want to put them. It's not a beaver going in and being like, oh, I'm just going to build a dam here. There's kind of a some study and some collaboration between ranchers, scientists, et cetera, on where these would best be suited. Mm-hmm. The one person I did speak to from Nevada Department of Wildlife was saying that there is no shortage of beavers here in Nevada. So they're not like endangered or anything. No, apparently they are quite prolific, <laughs> especially like Truckee River in Reno and northern Reno, that there is quite a substantial number of beavers and that they have been doing really great since we have been giving them their space. Well, I'm glad these beavers are helping the ecosystem here in Nevada. I guess to wrap everything up here, is there any final thing you would like listeners to know about this story? When I was working on the story, I talked with a rancher from Elko area named John Griggs. And I've worked with John several times, but he is a fairly big name in the ranching community. He's president of the Nevada Cattlemen's Association. And he was telling me that just, oh, 30 or so years ago, when he was hired on in Elko as cowboy, one of his first jobs was to drive to Battle Mountain nearby, pick up some dynamite and come back and blow up Beaver Dam. I was like, man, we've come a really long way in 30 years from like we were going to blow up the Beaver Dams to now. Now John is kind of like a beaver advocate. He's uh, traveled around the country talking about the pluses of beavers, why you would want to have them on your ranch and some of the positive things that they've done for streams and creeks on the property he manages. And I thought that was really interesting to talk to somebody who within their lifetime just had this hard 180 of what the beavers do for their job or to aid farmers and ranchers. I think that's a good analogy, honestly, for like life in general. (laughs) And he did say that he's noticed a lot of shifts in mentality by a lot of other Western farmers and ranchers who he deals with through work. There's kind of like a broader recognition now of like, maybe the way we were doing it all those years wasn't the only way or wasn't the best way. And I think that's really neat to see. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We want to thank Gabby Bierenbaum, Amy Alonzo, and Rocio Hernandez for being on the show today. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, and Alex Cabro, with additional help from Michelle Rundells. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Alex Kuro. And we'll talk to you next week.